Welcome to our last official meeting this semester of, uh, of the Equip Institute. You brave folks have endured the inaugural semester of, uh, of the Equip Institute. So this is our last official meeting. I want to begin with a couple of announcements and then I'll pray. I uh, want to remind you that next week, same bat time, same bat channel, we're going to have a bonus meeting, which is just going to be open conversation for a little while, uh, whatever you want to talk about. And since we're going to talk about Revelation tonight, I figure it's good for the next week to have a bonus meeting for people to talk about uh, whatever they want to talk about. But seriously, that'll just be open conversation. I'm willing to hang out next week for an hour, but if we only hang out for 10 minutes and it's just two or three of us, that's okay too. But uh, Leah and I will be here and you're, you're welcome to come and join us if you want to. The second one, and this one is just for free, it is the book of Revelation, not Revelations. So just like, just like there is no grocery store called Kroger's and there is no department store called JCPenney's, so there is no book of Revelations in the Bible. It's Revelation. So that one's just for free. Let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, not just for this evening, but for the entire semester that we've had uh, to uh, think rightly about your, you and your word for the sake of living rightly before you in your world. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would be with us now in our uh, last official meeting of the fall. Uh, we pray that it would be time well spent for the sake of the kingdom work that you're doing in through and among us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know why we exist. We've said it every week and I just included it in the prayer, so we won't repeat it right now. But you know why we're here. And uh, we're concluding our 12-week study of uh, the Christian story this fall, uh, tonight. Last week we discussed Paul's epistles and this week we're going to talk about uh, what we call the general epistles the book of Hebrews and Revelation. Now I have tried to construct the outline in such a way that we're going to spend about half our time in Revelation. Because I know if I don't do that, you're all going to be going, yeah, 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 First John, hurry up and get to Revelation. <laughs> so, uh, and there's no way we can talk about all the stuff you're really interested in with Revelation, but I, I will do my best to address uh, the big picture stuff. But we are not going to rush through Hebrews because that's my favorite book in the New Testament. But let's begin with the general epistles. We learned last week that Paul wrote 13 of those 21 letters in the New Testament. The eight other letters are called the general epistles, or sometimes they're called the Catholic epistles. We don't often call them that because we don't want people to think Roman Catholic, but Catholic just means for the church universal, uh, kind of for everybody. And, uh, and there's two reasons that they go by these names. Uh, the first is that Paul didn't write them. So we've got Paul's letters and all the other letters. Uh, but the second reason is they were accepted as Scripture by the wider church, the church Catholic, if you will, uh, by the turn of the second century. And, and so by the time we got to about A.D. 100, uh, these letters really weren't being debated uh, anymore. They were all uh, in pretty good standing as far as the canon went. Two apostles wrote general epistles, John and Peter. 
We'll mention them in a minute. Two of Jesus' siblings wrote general epistles, James and Jude. And what we know about the date and the original recipients varies pretty widely uh, depending upon the epistle. So we'll just approach that kind of book by book. Uh, We'll briefly introduce each of them. And like we did with Paul, uh, we're not going to get bogged down in debates between conservatives and liberals or between Catholics and Protestants. We're just going to assume conservative Protestant evangelicals are normally right because they're normally right. That's who we are. So, uh, you know, Q&A, we can talk about some of that other stuff, but we're going we're gonna to assume kind of who we are and that we're uh, getting it right. Uh, we're going to discuss the letters in the order they were likely written rather than their canonical order. We did that last time with, uh, with Paul as well. So let's begin with James. And I mentioned this in passing last week, but James is more than likely the earliest document we have in the New Testament. It was written before James was martyred around A.D. 45. So I want to put it in context for just a minute. That means the book of James was written between 10 and 15 years after Jesus' resurrection. That's how early it is. Now, I don't want to chase the rabbit for too long. There's a debate as to whether Jesus uh, was crucified and resurrected in A.D. 30 or A.D. 33. But with whichever one you go with, and we don't know with certainty which one it was, this is really early after that, just a few years after that. Now, we don't know for certain who James was writing to, but it seems like it was a group of Jewish believers who lived outside of Palestine. We know that he was one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church, but he's not writing to them. He's writing to somebody somewhere else. And so, again, especially at this stage where there were so few Gentiles who had started coming into the church, it seems like Jesus, uh, that James is writing to mostly Jewish followers of Christ and, and not the ones he's shepherding, but some folks who were somewhere else. His letter also focuses more on what I'm just going to call Christian living than Christian doctrine. It's not that he doesn't mention doctrine, but if you've read through James, you know this. It's just a really practical book. Uh, some of it echoes the Sermon on the Mount and kind of Jesus' ethical teachings. And so it just seems clear that the issues he's addressing are not as much what should we believe sort of questions as the how should we live in light of what we believe sort of questions. And so that's why James is focused a little bit more on those practical matters. These are the major themes that we see in the book of James. Uh, the importance of overcoming trials in the Christian life, not showing preference toward the rich over the poor. That seemed to be a problem both in the church and something that was maybe going on in their cultural context that they were facing. The importance of godly wisdom in the Christian life. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and without reproach. Uh, the role that good works plays in validating authentic faith. Uh, that we know faith on the basis of works. And then also the impact of our words for good or ill. Uh, the taming of the tongue, the power of the tongue. It's uh, a rudder that steers the ship. We, we see all of those things. Now I do just want to throw out there one doctrinal thing. Uh, Going back to faith and works, 
if I can chase the rabbit for just a minute, uh, one of the most debated things in the entire New Testament, and we also referenced it last week, but I want to bring it up again this week, is the question of whether James and Paul have different understandings of faith and works. Some of you may remember this from last week. Our Roman Catholic friends say, James teaches that we're justified by faith and works, not by faith alone. But that doesn't seem to be what James is really arguing. He's not addressing the same questions about faith and works that Paul's addressing with legalism and things like that. Uh, he's addressing a different question. He's addressing false faith, phony faith, people who say that they're Christians, but their lives don't match up with that. So what James is really drilling down on is not the idea that we're justified by our works, but that you know we have faith when you see evidence of that in works. Words aren't enough. Anybody can say Jesus is Lord. The question is, does the life match up with that confession? And that seems to be the question that James is addressing more than Paul who's addressing the question of do we in some way earn our salvation or keep our salvation by behaving and by living a certain way. And so that's why there's the different emphases between the two. Any questions about the book of James? Very practical book. Over the years, Leah and I have been a part of a number of different uh, college ministries and young adult ministries, and often James is where we begin, just thinking about what it means to live Christianly, especially with those young people. First and second, Peter. Peter was likely martyred under Nero between 65 and 67, same period that Paul was likely martyred. And that means that he probably wrote First and Second Peter in the early to mid-60s, within two or three years at the most before that happened. We know that the letters were written to Christians in Asia Minor because he tells us that. And they were likely written to Gentile believers. He doesn't tell us that. But just the way that he talks about things, uh, it sounds like or it reads like he's talking to people who are coming from more of a Gentile background than a Jewish background. We don't know that for sure, but that's kind of a, a sanctified guess. But here's the themes that we see in 1 Peter and then 2 Peter. 1 Peter, uh, the church is an exile people. Some of you may remember the, uh, the phrase, this world is not our home, we're just a passing through. Uh, something kind of like that is what Peter's getting at. Uh, there's a sense in which this world is very much our home, but there's another sense in which we know that it's a foretaste of our final home. And Peter is kind of getting right in the middle of that exile theme. Uh, the importance of faithfully enduring persecution. One of the things I think is really interesting about First Peter, he talks about uh, the church's fulfillment of several different motifs that we see in the Old Testament applied to Israel, but Peter applies them to the church. Uh, let, I'll just give you three examples. Uh, the Old Testament talks about uh, Israel as the elect or the chosen. He talks about the church as the elect or the chosen. Uh, he talks about Israel, excuse me, the Old Testament talks about Israel as a kingdom of priests. Peter talks about the church as a kingdom of priests. Uh, the Old Testament talks about the importance of the tabernacle and the temple. First Peter, Peter talks about how the church is the temple. 
And so there's just very much this taking these Old Testament ideas and transferring them in some ways to the church uh, that we find in Peter's writings in particular. One of my favorite themes in the book, uh, living in light of the second coming. We talked about that a little bit with Paul last week. Major theme in uh, Peter's writings, when we think about the second coming, it should spur us on in the pursuit of holiness, living faithfully. Jesus' substitutionary atonement for sinners, that He took our place, took upon us, uh, took upon Himself our sin. We see that theme. Uh, The importance of personal holiness, often tied with the second coming. Uh, But in the first couple of chapters, just a great reflection on uh, what the Old Testament says about about holiness and kind of what that means in light of Christ now. Uh, And then there's a long section in the Uh, chapters uh, 3 and 4, I think it is, on how to rightly order relationships in the home and society. How should uh, parents relate to their children? How should spouses uh, relate to each other? How should servants relate to their masters? And so very much translating the Christian life to those sort of everyday interpersonal relationships that you would have found in a household uh, during the first century. And then sometime shortly after that, might have been a few months, might have been a year or two, we don't know, but sometime shortly after that he writes Second Peter. It's a much shorter book and uh, many of the themes repeat themselves, but he drills down a little bit more on the marks of spiritual maturity, how you know somebody is growing, maturing in Christ. Uh, he addresses the inspiration and authority of Scripture. When we come back in the spring, for those of you who are a part of that one, uh, we'll talk week two about Scripture, and this is a, one of the passages that we'll deal with is in Second Peter. Uh, the dangers of false teachers. The dangers of false teachers. If I can just give a word of application for just a minute. False teaching is not a laughing matter in Scripture. It's not something that we wink at. It's not something that you joke about. It's not something that you look the other way with. False teaching is a threat to faithfulness. Sometimes it's a threat to the gospel itself. Other times it might not be quite at that level, but it's a threat to our flourishing as believers whenever we buy into false teaching. And uh, Peter, just like Paul does in the pastoral epistles, Peter in 2 Peter warns us about the dangers of false teachers. And then finally, God's coming judgment against sin and His rescue of His people uh, at the end of the age. Any questions about Peter's letters? Tom. It it strikes me as odd that you said in 1 Peter, he talks about the church's fulfillment of Israel's various persecutions. But yet he's writing to Gentiles. Yeah. That's a really great question. So if it's, if it's Gentiles, why the focus on these Jewish ideas finding their fulfillment in the church? I think what we need to do is put ourselves in their shoes for just a minute. Sometimes we're tempted 2,000 years later to look at the Old and New Testament and to say, how does the Old Testament fit into the story of the New Testament? 
Because the New Testament's more familiar to us as Christians because we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so often we're trying to understand the Old Testament kind of through the lens of the New Testament. But we need to understand that in the first century, the, their Bible was what we call the Old Testament. So they weren't trying to figure out how do you read all that Jewish stuff, if you will, in light of the New Covenant. They were trying to say, how does our story fit in this story that's unveiling around us book by book and teaching by teaching? So when we get to the Gentiles, part of what Peter and Paul are having to say to the Gentiles is Israel's story is now your story. You're being grafted in to that story. And this is what it means for you. It's not just that this God is also the only God and thus your God. He's specifically the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is the eternal Son of that God. He is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's, it's all the same story, but it's a different approach with different groups. And so for Israel, it's all your hopes and aspirations are fulfilled in Jesus. For the Gentiles, it's the Jewish story is also your story because it's not just a Jewish story. It's now finding its fulfillment in Christ and people from every tribe and tongue and nation are being brought into that story. Does that make sense? Any other questions? I love that question. Any others? Let's talk about Jude. Poor Jude. Short little book. Little red-headed step letter. But good stuff. Good stuff. Jude was possibly written in the mid-60s around the same time Peter was writing his epistles. Uh, but nobody knows for certain. Here's why we think it might have been written around the same time. We don't know who he was writing to, but we think it might have been around the same time and even to some of the same people, maybe, that Peter was writing to because the letter echoes 2 Peter in particular a number of times. And so it's possible, not saying it's definite, but it's possible that Peter was even drawing upon Jude or Jude was drawing upon Peter. And, uh, and there are many conservative Bible scholars who think that that was the case and that whoever wrote first, we don't know, that one was aware of the other because there's just a lot of echoed language in 2 Peter and Jude. That's why if you go and look at commentary series to help with preaching and teaching and things like that, you often see uh, Jude in the same commentary with First and Second Peter because those themes overlap so much. Again, maybe even awareness of the letters uh, writing to the same people. So no big surprise that every theme we see in Jude is similar to themes we saw in 2 Peter. Uh, contending for the true faith, resisting false teachers, uh, God's grace in preserving authentic believers in their faith. Uh, the idea of uh, the, the preservation of those who believe or uh, what we often in Baptist churches call eternal security is a big theme uh, that we see in uh, the book of Jude. I know that's a quick hit, but yeah, questions? 
we don't know very much about Jude at all. We know that he was one of Jesus' half-brothers, but only because he tells us at the very beginning that that's who he was. And I think he's mentioned one other time briefly in the New Testament. I can't quote it chapter and verse right now. But we don't know very much about any of Jesus' siblings except for James. And then just a little bit about Jude. We don't even know for sure how many siblings Jesus had. Uh, We just don't know with certainty. Again, poor Jude. But hey, Jude, he's there. (laughs) Yes, sir. Yeah. So uh, Jude is one of the oddities of Jude is that Jude references a book from the Old Testament era that is not in the Old Testament uh, to make his larger case. And uh, all I make of that is that he's, he's definitely quoting it in the same way that uh, we saw Paul just a couple of Sundays ago, last time Josh preached, quoting pagan philosophers to, uh, to make his larger point. Um, I don't think that it automatically means Jude thought that Enoch was a uh, a biblical writing, a a scriptural writing. Um, But uh, the question is, was that ringtone like that just on Friday or was it like that at the beginning of the month? When is it time to switch the ringtones? Um, But I think what it does mean is that Jude thought that writing was relevant to what he was saying. And, and we, if we go back to our conversation about those different apocryphal books, again, we need to remember that just because they're not in Scripture doesn't mean they are without value. It just means they're not inspired. They tell us lots of helpful things about the history at various times, things that different groups of Jews were thinking, stuff like that. Uh, just like we have churches, excuse me, we have some books that were written at the very end of the first century uh, AD that are not in Scripture, but were written by believers that are largely consistent with what we see in Scripture. So uh, he thought it was worth quoting, but I, I don't. I think it would be saying too much to say that means we should think of that writing as a scriptural writing. All right, first, second, and third John. John's going to get a lot of playtime tonight. John is the same apostle who wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation. He wrote his three letters near the end of the first century and sometime before he wrote Revelation in the mid-90s. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, We don't know for sure when it was, but probably in that last third of the first century. Uh, By this time, early second century writers tell us that John was the only surviving apostle And so we might think of him, this is my language, uh, as kind of the elder statesman in the church at this time. Uh, But but the the early second century leaders are universal that by the time we get to the last couple of decades of uh, the first century, John's the only of those early apostles that are still alive. Uh, The three letters may have been written to different groups of Christians. We don't know that for sure. And they may not have been written in the order in which they appear in the canon. It's entirely possible 3rd John was written first or 2nd John was written before 1st John or uh, something like that. We don't know for sure. They're just in the order they're in because of their length. Uh, But we don't really know which one was written first or second or third. 
1 John is by far the longest of the letters. And here's some of the major themes that we see there. Jesus' deity and humanity, that He's fully God and fully man. The unity between the Father and the Son in particular. Jesus's, lots of stuff about Jesus. Jesus' incarnation, God becoming man. Uh, his atonement, dying on behalf of sinners. His ongoing advocacy on behalf of believers. This is also going to be a theme in Hebrews that we're going to see, that Jesus is uh, now in the presence of God as our advocate. Uh, the eternal life that's given to believers. Not a big surprise here. We talked about this several weeks ago with the Gospel of John. No big surprise that a major theme in the Gospel of John is also a major theme in 1 John, which is that eternal life doesn't begin when believers die. Eternal life begins when we become believers. We're, we already have eternal life. Uh, universal human sinfulness. Uh, everybody is a sinner. Uh, the role of love in obeying God's commandments. Have you ever had a Bible verse that you've read a hundred times, but you hit it on the hundred and first time and it's like you're reading it for the first time? Have you ever had that happen? It's happened with me in the last year with 1 John 5.3 says, uh, in this, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. It says something like that several times in 1 John, but it's the second part. And His commandments are not burdensome. On my sinfulest days, my sinfulest moments and my sin, on my sinfulest days, God's commands can seem burdensome. But John tells us in 1 John 5.3 that his commands are not burdensome. What a needed reminder, maybe not for you, what a needed reminder that it is a joy to obey because God's commandments are not burdensome. So the role of love in obeying God's commands. And then a major theme in 1 John, the, the evidence of authentic faith. In fact, uh, many sermon series I've heard over the years and teaching series even structure around this idea of different tests of authentic faith that we see uh, throughout 1 John. 2 John was likely written to a particular congregation, uh, though he refers to them as the elect lady or the chosen lady. Uh, the main thing, and, and by the way, if you're wondering why do you say that, what's well, because he he says the elect lady, but then he's using plural language throughout. So it seems like that's just a figurative way of speaking of the church. The main themes are the role of love in obeying God's commandments. We saw that in 1 John 2. Uh, and the need to resist false teachers. 3 John is addressed to a believer named Gaius, but it was likely intended for Gaius's entire church. The letter encourages Gaius to support itinerant evangelists who were spreading the gospel, to ignore a troublemaker named Diotrephes, and it commends a godly believer named Demetrius, who might have been the one who delivered the letter to Gaius or the church. Uh, John refers to himself as an elder, and that could mean one of two things or maybe even both things. It might be a reference to his age... He was very old. Or it might mean that he was actually pastoring a church at this late stage in his ministry. And uh, some of the early church fathers tell us that John spends some time late in his life pastoring in Ephesus. 
And so maybe when we see elder, we should think old guy. Maybe when we see it, we should think elder like a pastor in a church, not just somebody who's been an apostle. Maybe an old guy who was a pastor. But, uh, but again, at the very least, he was uh, sort of the elder statesman by this stage in the church. Any questions about John's letters? Oh, y'all don't want to ask your questions. You want to get to Revelation. But we've got one more, Hebrews. And we're not going to go through this quick. Uh, the author of Hebrews is a mystery. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Throughout, throughout church history, lots of plausible theories have gone forward on this. Uh, Barnabas, Apollos, Luke, Clement of Rome, an early church father who wrote around the turn of the first century, but his other writings would, would not be in Scripture if it was him. Uh, and of course, Paul. And uh, the famous church father Origen had my famous theory. Uh, he says around 200, and I quote, God only knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. That's actually what he says. The book was written to Jewish believers, though it's unclear where they were located. Not a lot of evidence of that. It was possibly originally a recorded sermon rather than a letter popular, there, a, a, a letter proper. There's a lot of scholars who think that it might have been uh, a sermon or a portion of a sermon that was circulated. Uh, so there's a debate among scholars as to whether Hebrews is a general epistle or whether it's just a writing from the New Testament that's written by somebody and we don't know who it is. So we're not really sure how to classify it. Hebrews was likely written prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And here's why I'm going to say that the author would have almost certainly mentioned that event because he's writing to a Jewish audience all about Jewish themes. It seems like if the temple would have been torn down in recent years, that's something he would have been, that he would have mentioned. So almost everybody, conservatives and liberals, think that it was probably written before AD 70 because it just seems really unlikely that, uh, that the destruction of the temple would have gone without mention by the author of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews is a doctrinally rich book. It engages deeply with the Old Testament, and it focuses significant attention on Jesus' identity. So I'm actually going to give you two different groups of themes. First group are themes especially about who Jesus is. Uh, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. And a major theme is that Jesus is superior to, better than. Jesus is superior to Moses. He is superior to the Aaronic priesthood. He is superior to the earthly tabernacle and temple. He is superior even to the angels. Jesus is better than all these good things. Jesus represents not the Aaronic priesthood, but a forever priesthood. And as high priest, the great high priest, Jesus offered up Himself as a forever sacrifice for sinners. Let me say that again. Jesus is both the high priest 
and the offering. We see that in the book of Hebrews. Beautiful language talking about what Jesus has done. So it's a very Jesus-centered book, which is one of the reasons I love it so much. But there's lots of other major themes too. Uh, The importance of faith with Hebrews 11 and that great hall of faith, but that's just one of many places in Hebrews where he talks about the importance of faith. The superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. Maybe what it's most known for when it comes to debating, warnings that believers must persevere in their new covenant faith rather than rejecting Jesus for the old covenant. Four different major warning passages in Hebrews, the most famous being in Hebrews chapter 6, that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and maybe someone in this room, uh, believe, teach that true believers can forfeit their salvation. It's not what I believe. It's not what most Baptists believe. Uh, But still, nevertheless, warnings to not abandon the faith and not to... Uh, reject the new covenant by going back to the old covenant. Remember, he's writing to Jewish followers of Christ and offering this warning, seeming to indicate that maybe some of them were tempted to, uh, to go back to the old covenant. Christians are now living in the last days, and God will one day judge sin. Another major uh, theme in the book of Hebrews. So before somebody asks, what do you think we should do with Hebrews chapter 6 and those warning passages, there's a number of different options. Uh, So I'm just going to tell you what I believe, but I need to say there's a lot of different options and nobody knows with absolute certainty. Uh, I don't think true believers can forfeit salvation. I don't love the phrase, once saved, always saved, because sometimes what we think that means is if you prayed a prayer and you didn't have your fingers crossed, then you're automatically going to go to heaven no matter what you do. I don't think that's exactly how the Bible talks about it. But I do think it's true that if we are saved, we cannot become unsaved. If we have eternal life, that means it doesn't stop being the life that we have. I think that there's lots of of evidence throughout the New Testament, not just in Hebrews, uh, that God keeps those who believe. And so if that seems to be the consistent witness of the New Testament, I don't think we should change what seems to be clear everywhere else because of what's debatable in Hebrews 6 if that's all we're looking at. Does that make sense? We interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. So if the testimony throughout is that believers keep being believers by the grace of God, then I think Hebrews 6 can't mean true believers can forfeit their salvation. Instead, I think very much in context, it is a warning uh, to these individuals who profess faith in Christ, who are Jewish followers of Jesus, not to go back to the old covenant. It will not save. Things have changed with Jesus. And if you go back, you will not be saved. Now, I think from other passages in Scripture, that means they weren't really a Christian to begin with. But it's not really talking about that in Hebrews 6. It's just saying straightforward, if you reject it, you're not going to be saved. God alone knows the heart, right? So I think that it's a real warning. And I think it's a warning that applies to all of us, even though... It's unlikely many of us are Jewish followers of Jesus. 
I think the warning still stands. If we reject the gospel, we will not be saved. No matter what prayers we've prayed, aisles we've walked, to what degree of water has gone over us and how it's gone over us at different times or how we voted or how many rules we've kept or books we've read or whatnot, I think that the warning is clear. If any of us stop believing, we will not be saved. But here's the good news. True believers don't stop believing. We don't stop believing. Not because our faith is so strong, but because God is so great. Because He holds on to us. Even when we are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. He holds on. God's grace is sufficient, even for our doubts and our temptations and our drifting. And those who really are in Christ by grace through faith don't stop being in Christ by grace through faith. More on that next semester. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, do you think there's a difference between being saved and inheritance? Salvation and inheritance? A difference between being saved and, and our inheritance? And our inheritance. Um, I don't think there's a difference, but I think that our inheritance, my understanding of that, especially in Paul's writings, is that it's normally speaking of future blessings, whereas uh, whenever we think about being saved, we see that used past, present, and future uh, whenever we're looking in the New Testament. You know, we are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved at the last day. So I, I think inheritance is speaking a little bit more of the future blessings of the saved, but that doesn't mean we've not begun to come into those blessings now. Yeah, receive, receiving the prize, finishing well, absolutely. Yeah. I didn't know that had to do with inheritance. I don't think so. I don't think so. But I do think that Scripture talks about blessings and rewards for believers in the next life. And, and not, not all Christians agree with that. That is something that's very much debated among Christians like us. But I'm in the camp that I, I think we should take those passages at face value and that there are degrees of blessing and rewards in the next life based upon how we live in this life. But I hold it loosely. It's very debatable.